Welcome to EDS at Union Now. In this episode, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas speaks with Ari Berman, author of the award-winning book Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. They reflect on issues of voter suppression and access to the ballot experienced during the November 3rd election. Good afternoon on what is promising to be an historic day in our country. I welcome you to the last of our conversations in our Just Vote series. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York. I am pleased to have joining me once again in conversation, Mr. Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He was also the first national reporter to cover voter suppression during the 2012 election, earning, of course, widespread acclaim for his coverage and pushing this issue into the national spotlight, which we will again get into today. As your time has been in demand across a variety of media during this historic election, Ari, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us here again at EDS at Union. Hey, Kelly, great to see you again, and thanks so much for having me back. Well, thank you. Let's jump right in because we have a lot to cover, I think, in a short period of time. We are on the brink of seeing perhaps Joe Biden becoming the president-elect in this country. His role to the presidency, if you will, has been paved by record turnouts in pandemic times, and more specifically by record Black American turnouts, and even more particularly on the shoulders of Black women. Black women, in essence, saved his primary campaign in South Carolina, and it seems that Black women may thrust him into the White House with 91% of Black women voting for him with, again, record turnouts. And here's what we know. Throughout history, when we talk about voter suppression, we're talking about suppressing, really, the Black vote, which means the Black female vote. And so we see not we see now that the way to defeat voter suppression is of course to vote, but I think this election perhaps already tells us even something more. But in Georgia becomes a case study on, the, on this. For we see that with their tactics of voter suppression, which were really manifest during Stacey Abrams' campaign uh, for governor, it led to her founding the Fair Fight Organization, which registered more than 800,000 new voters, disproportionately black and young. And of course, we've seen in Georgia the record Black turnout. So can you say that in actual fact, the efforts to suppress the Black vote actually helped to turn it out? And perhaps without such overt tactics, we might have seen a different result in terms of the turnout? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Kelly. It's something that we're going to have to look into um, with the numbers, certainly anecdotally. Uh, I have heard that uh, from a lot of people in states like Georgia uh, and in Wisconsin. I mean, usually voter suppression is effective when it's done in back rooms. People don't know that their votes are being suppressed. But Trump was so outright about it in all of the things that he said, that he said he'll never win an election again if you make it easy to vote. And he said he didn't want to give money to the post office because then you couldn't expand mail-in voting. And he said he wouldn't accept the election results. And he said he was gonna send his lawyers in and all of this stuff. 
he said the quiet part out loud so many times. He really shouted the quiet part out loud that I think people heard the message that the president didn't want their votes to count. And I think it made them even more motivated to turn out. Now, I think people would have turned out anyway because they were unhappy with the president, because 225,000 Americans have died, because the economy is in crisis, because black men and women are being killed by the police. I think there was a lot of reasons to turn out, but I do think that the voter suppression efforts made people more motivated, not just to vote, but to make sure their vote was counted. So the fact that so many people voted early in record numbers was extremely important because it took stress off on election day. The fact that people seem to navigate mail voting, that so many people dropped their ballots off or sent their ballots back on time. I am not hearing lots of stories of ballots coming in too late, for example, um, which is really positive. And the fact that for all the talk of a reckoning among white people, white people stuck with Donald Trump, both exactly. white men and white women. And 56%. so it was it was black voters in right. Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Latino voters uh, in Arizona and Nevada and Native American voters and Muslim voters. They were the ones that defeated Donald Trump. If there, if there was a map I saw today, if you look at what the electorate looks like, if it's all white, it's all red. And if you look at what the electorate looks like when people of color have their say, it's a completely different story. No, that's, thank you for saying that's precisely right. We, we've seen over 50% of white voters, it's right now it's suggesting 56% or so, went with Trump. And so the changing demographic is a changing electorate and can indeed uh, give us changed results. I'm also interested in, uh, as you speak about these swing states or these battleground states, we're talking about Wisconsin, we're talking about Michigan, we're talking obviously about uh, Philadelphia, and we're talking about sort of urban centers and the close suburbs in those centers. So again, we're talking about black vote and, and voters of color. And it's no accident then, it seems to me, that the very uh, votes, again, that the president is take, threatening to take legal, make legal challenges to, are again from these urban centers in these obviously battleground states. But again, he's mounting an attempt to suppress and indeed to disenfranchise disproportionately black voters and trying to take this to the courts. Can you speak to that? What should we expect to see? Yeah, they, they filed a lot of really uh, frivolous lawsuits. Um, I don't expect much of anything uh, to come from it. Uh, these are blatant attempts to try to shut down the counting of votes by claiming that irregularities occurred, which did not occur. Uh, they're essentially just making stuff up and throwing whatever they can at the wall to see if it sticks and nothing is really sticking. And yeah, you're absolutely right. When, when the president says uh, elections are so corrupt in Philly and Detroit, I mean, he's, that's a direct attack on um, black voters. And he's not, he's not concerned about elections in Florida or in Ohio or, or in states that he won. Um, he's only concerned with states that he lost and more to the point, the big urban areas uh, in the places uh, that he lost. And so it's unfortunate that the president is doing this because I think he is spreading a lot of disinformation. He's raising the prospect of intimidation and violence among his supporters. He's putting election officials in very difficult circumstances where they're getting death threats, 
where people are banging on windows and doors trying to get led into uh, the counting of ballots, which they have no business being at, where people are being very tight together at a time of COVID. Uh, so I think all of this stuff is really unfortunate. And I think it has an effect on the democratic process. But I don't think they're going to succeed in shutting down the votes. Uh, I don't think that they're going to succeed in throwing votes out. Uh, and I think people are more and more realizing this is just a desperate attempt to undermine the democratic process that is not going to succeed. So let's let's pick up from there undermine the democratic democratic process and perhaps uh what it means we heard throughout this uh run up to the election that it was about more than political partisanship it was about in some in, in some ways more than individual men that it was about saving the soul of this nation, it was about saving our democracy. And as I heard that, and as we see now, the results come in with some exit polling that tells us who voted, uh, how the demographics went, and we see that 91% of black women and, and voters of color, uh, in so many respects, if this is what the election was about, saved as usual, this democracy, I think of what Anna Julia Cooper, an early black female suffragette said, she said, when and where the black woman enters, the whole race enters with me. And in this instance, we, we see this, I think, when we think of Kamala Harris, for instance, we are spending so much time talking about how Joe Biden turned this around. What impact did Kamala Harris have on also getting out that black female vote. This is a uh, South Asian uh, woman, a Jamaican woman who is identified so closely with the African-American community, HBCU, AKA. Why aren't we hearing more about her impact uh, up on uh, what happened on election day? That's a, that's a really good um, point. I mean, Kamala Harris brought history uh, to the right. ticket. So it wasn't just another old white guy uh, that you had someone who will soon be the first woman vice president, the first person of color to ever be vice president, the first black woman to ever be um, vice president. And that's the historic part of the ticket. And I mean, it's true. Joe Biden was running a campaign where he wanted to get a lot of those old school white votes. And in fact, he may have succeeded in some places in reducing Donald Trump's margin with some of these voters. He might have overperformed, for example, in the industrial Midwest uh, in certain places. Um, but without black voters, without the impact of Kamala Harris, there's no way he would have won the election. So I think she brought energy to the ticket. Um, I think she brought history uh, to the ticket. And I think that's the future of the Democratic Party. I mean, Joe Biden is most likely the last old white guy that Democrats are ever going to nominate. And they nominated him because they made a very pragmatic decision that he would be the best person to defeat Donald Trump. And it, I mean, it's really hard to argue with that. I mean, he's up by 4 million votes in the popular vote. That's probably going to get to five or 6 million. So he's going to have the largest popular vote margin in, in history, the, the largest number of votes in history. If you win, if you flip Arizona, you flip Georgia, which is still out, but even having a chance to do it, um, winning back the industrial Midwest. I mean, that's a pretty significant achievement. I mean, we're in a very uh, polarized country right now. And I think the thing to me that's a little 
well, it's not a little depressing. It's very depressing is that it was almost like everything that happened in the last few four years didn't really matter to Trump <laughs> supporters. Um, it didn't matter that 225,000 people died or that so many people were out of work or the president was disgracing the office of the presidency on a daily basis or lying about everything. It didn't seem to matter. I mean, you're talking about the number of votes that shifted in in Michigan or Wisconsin. It's a minuscule number. And it was only really in the states where the demographics have shifted a lot, like in Arizona or in Georgia, that you saw a little bit more change. Um, but basically, nothing really changed a lot in the last four years. And I think that that to us is a, kind of a really hard lesson about where the country is at right now. Well, no, I think I think you're right. I think the lessons after this election, I mean, we talk about a divided uh, nation, a divided electorate and how so many things that matter. But we, we are seeing is, uh, again, as some of us have said, I think a 21st century version <laughs> of the Civil War. Because the other thing, of course, we know that didn't matter, we must face the reality that the MAGA vision uh, was a vision that uh, sustains, nurtures, fosters uh, white supremacy in a white supremacist narrative. And it seemed that that didn't matter uh, to many in the electorate, particularly the white voters in the electorate as they went 56% for Trump. And so again, you know, this country has to really reckon with this matter of race that I think uh, this election has again laid very bare for us. Your thoughts? Well, I, I agree. I mean, I think it, it's very clear that white supremacy is actually motivating a lot of people to vote exactly. for Donald Trump. Far from hurting him, it's it's helping him. And I think, you know, you're seeing the most resistance uh, to that among people who feel displaced um, by the changing demographics. And so uh, that 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 is going to be an issue that continues to play out. I don't think we should believe that the demographics are going to change and political power is going to change without a huge fight over it. In the same way that the same thing happened after the Civil War, when Black men were given new rights, uh, that led to a, a very fierce struggle and a very fierce backlash. Um, the good news is that even if Biden is a transitional candidate, he is able to resist some of these forces. That, that he, he is not able to end white supremacy, but he's not going to entrench it. And <laughs> at the same time, you talked earlier about what would have happened to democracy. And I think it would have been very, very difficult for democracy to survive four more years well, of I Donald agree. Trump. I think we would have basically become a quasi-democratic, hungry-like system where we have elections, but they are essentially meaningless um, because one party has done so much to entrench its power. Now, that threat is not going away, by the way. We still have a six to three Supreme Court. We still have Republicans in control of all of these key states uh, with the power to then draw redistricting maps for the next decade. Uh, we still have, for now, Republicans in control of the U.S. Senate. So there's only so much Joe Biden is going to do. He is not going to be able to reverse all of these attacks on democracy. But he's also not going to throw fire on it either. You know, he's not going to throw more wood on the fire when it comes to this. And having a different attorney general, uh, having oh, a different no. vice president, <laughs> having a president just tells the truth about things, um, I think is, is going to have a big impact. And at the very least, Biden 
starts to reverse some of the things that Trump does and buy some time for a larger democratic vision. Although it would have been a lot, lot easier to implement a lot of the democratic reforms that I think we needed uh, had Democrats have taken back the U.S. Senate. So that, that remains something that uh, I think needs to change at some point. No, I agree. And at least perhaps uh, uh, we can stem the tide, as you suggested. I want to get us to two more points before uh, let you go for uh, your next uh, <laughs> round of interviews. The, the first is you talk about our democracy. You know, one of the uh, sort of sore points here, if you will, is the Electoral College. Right, you know, so that this Hillary Clinton wasn't the first time that there was a, a, a candidate who won the uh, popular vote and didn't win the presidency. That's happened at least four other times in our history. And so the Electoral College in so many ways also can function, and we know almost its original intent was to function to suppress votes uh, and certain pop so there wouldn't be this sort of the popular majority uh, wouldn't rule. And so particularly in the South, and we know that that was always related to issues of, of slavery and black representation or possible black representation there. What, what's the future of this <laughs> electoral college? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it was so crazy. I mean, last night, I was watching TV and we were obsessing over 1900 votes in Georgia. Right. When Joe Biden's lead in the electoral college surpassed 4 million votes. I mean, the election is not close at all from a popular vote margin. I mean, I think it was 1120 on election night when everyone was freaking out when Joe Biden went ahead in the popular vote. And you just knew that his lead was gonna grow and grow and grow. So, I mean, if we had a truly democratic election in which everyone's votes mattered equally, this election would have never been in doubt. That's and you're talking about so many people whose votes really don't matter, including huge communities of color. I mean, you're talking about California, that's a majority right. minority state that's completely disenfranchised in electoral college, that's New right. York, New York City, one of the most diverse cities in the world, totally disenfranchised when it comes to the electoral college. Even Texas, yes, it mattered more this year, but in the end, it didn't really contribute to the outcome. So all of those votes in Houston and Dallas and San Antonio of communities of color, again, not really affecting the outcome of the election in these disproportionate white states, you know, Maine's first congressional district, entirely white, had so much more relevance to the electoral college than New York or California or Illinois or all of these other places. And so such an antiquated institution, it's so ridiculous that we are fighting over 10,000 votes here or 2,000 votes here when millions and millions and millions of votes separate the candidates. And so, I mean, I think it's just impossible to justify the electoral college under any kind of democratic principles because clearly uh, it just makes millions and millions of Americans, whether you're a Republican in the blue state or a Democratic, Democrat in a red state or just in a, any sort of safe state, your vote really doesn't matter when it comes to the, choosing the president. That's right. I mean, it, it basically disenfranchises large uh, groups of people and, and disproportionately demographics of, of color, communities of color. And so uh, I want to end perhaps on a more hopeful note, uh, but I want to end, I, I don't think we can 
evaluate and talk about this election and its turnout, its record turnout across the board, its record turnout in terms of people of color, its record turnout in terms of African-Americans, even more so without talking about John Lewis. Yeah. And and John Lewis's legacy. We know that right up uh, until almost his dying day, he was talking about the sacredness of the vote. And in fact, he he implored people to vote like he said we've never voted before. And indeed, we in this country voted like we never voted before. And indeed, the black community voted uh, like it never voted before. But getting the vote as he always knew and voting was only the first step toward transforming our society to making it more of a democracy, to making it more representative of all people, making it more just. And he said that for him, that was an extension of faith to do that. And so where, how do we continue his legacy beyond the voting booth? especially beyond November 3rd, and especially how must faith leaders continue that legacy that was John Lewis's? That's a great question. And I thought a lot about John Lewis throughout this election, but particularly last night when Georgia was trending blue and the county that put Georgia over the top was was in John Lewis's congressional district in Clayton County. Uh, outside of Atlanta was in John Lewis's congressional district. So it just felt so fitting that a state with such a large black population where so many votes were suppressed in 2018, when Stacey Abrams tried to become the first black woman governor in US history, uh, that it would be John Lewis's home state and it would be John Lewis's congressional district that would put Joe Biden uh, in the lead. It just seemed fitting that after all the stuff that we had been through in 2020, that that could be one of the potential endings and that he talked so much about the vote as the most powerful nonviolent instrument for change in a democratic society and that people really seem to understand that. But John Lewis also wanted the vote to be a vehicle. That's right. For bigger changes. And I think if John Lewis were alive today, he would want all of the energy that went into voting to go into solving all of the problems that we must confront, whether it's police brutality, in reforming the police or whether it's doing something about the climate or whether it's doing something about millions of, not millions, but I should say tens of thousands of people that are dying now uh, or all the people that are out of work. Uh, And I think the, the role of faith leaders is just to keep making a moral case for all of these issues, to not frame them in democratic or Republican terms, but that we have a moral responsibility for people not to be killed by the police. We have a moral responsibility not to destroy the climate. We have a moral responsibility to help millions of people that are out of work. We have a moral responsibility to keep hundreds of thousands of more people alive. I mean, these are all moral things. And I think we have to keep the moral lens on it because a lot of things are gonna bog down in politics right now. They're gonna bog down between Joe Biden and a Republican Congress and Republicans controlling the states and Democrats controlling the White House and all of the partisan infighting that's not going to go away that existed during President Obama and is going to exist now. Uh, But I think the more that we can make a moral case, the more that we can move beyond some of these party optics. And it's interesting. I mean, in Florida, 
which Trump won fairly comfortably, right. voters there approved in record numbers a higher minimum wage. Uh, legislation to decriminalize marijuana passed in every state where it was on the ballot. And so I think once you get beyond party labels, I think it's easier to reach people on some of these issues. And I think Americans want the pandemic to be solved and to make it a priority. Um, Americans want help for all the people that are out of work. Americans don't want the environment to continue to be trashed. They don't want police killing unarmed black men and women. And I think that's all of the reasons that people turned out in record numbers. And I think what we need to do is we need to translate that voting energy uh, into action. And, and that's the next step of the process. And I think, you know, everyone's going to take a little bit of time <laughs> to decompress, although we have two runoffs in Georgia, so don't take too much time. Um, but, but everyone's going to decompress. And then, you know, in January, the work starts all over again. No, thank you so much. And I think that's a perfect place to end. And that if indeed this election was about more than simply two men and their characters, but about the soul of this nation and the character of its people, then our work only just begins. And it is the work of the faith community to lead the way. Thank you, Ari Berman, for taking this time. And thank you more so for what has been your consistent witness and your consistent call and keeping our eye on the ball, not only in terms of voter suppression, but the importance of being engaged in our democracy. Thank you Thanks so, so much, much, Kelly. I appreciate it. Stay well. You too. We'll talk Bye. soon, I hope. Thank you. Yes, absolutely.